Welcome back, Rage Nation. Got myself Pete here. That's yeah. not really exciting. You got Senior Dixon. I don't think that's appropriate. And you got Monsieur Leopard. Explorers deserved it. No. Absolutely. I was disgusted. I cannot believe they've done this. Why is wacky? Why is that good? It's just nonsense. I disagree on that. That's not possible. <laughs> We're getting the band back together. We're on a mission. Yeah. Now, now we've got a whole new list of things to complain about. Welcome back, Rage Nation. We are at it again. Got myself Pete here. And I thought I was going to have myself a boring conversation, so I invited on Mr. Jesse. How you doing, my friend? Hey, y'all. What's up? Now, you all may be recovering from the four-hour boomer banger that Jesse released on Ma Tucket. Did, did you guys plan for that beast to be four hours, Jesse? No. No. Um, the problem was we didn't have adult supervision, um, <laughs> and Sam and I don't know how to shut up. So yeah. usually we would have, like, Maeve typically uh, would be on to help, you know, kind of keep things on track, especially if we're doing something that I am very uh, deep in the weeds on. Uh, it's kind of amazing that me and Landon's uh, Last Blossom deep dive that we did a couple of months ago didn't go that long because it certainly could have. Uh, but come to find out, Landon's a much more concise speaker than Sam is, and me and Sam just kind of feed yeah. off of each other. So I, I yeah. had that episode going, and I, I sent it to somebody who's looking at playing Maw Tucket in my local meta, and he was like, dude, I'm like 30 minutes in, and they're just talking about Scamper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, "Hey, man, there's a lot. It's a lot of good stuff there if you uh, just yeah. parse it out throughout the week." <laughs> yep, yep. It was one that, like, usually what I do is after I post an episode, I'll usually listen to it for QC just to make sure I didn't goof anything up. Now, if I were a good podcaster, I would actually listen to it before I post it so I could go back and fix stuff. But I'm always just anxious to hit that publish button. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we got you on today because we're going to talk about your event that you're running at Captain Con. I uh, got a couple events. You got the content creators invitational and then you got the two day tournament. So it I, I like it because it's two it's two just I would call them actual events where you feel like you're really playing Malifaux. It's not like Bonanza Brawl or Henchman Hardcore where it's like, okay, this is Malifaux, but it's different. You know, I appreciate a different event that is still Malifaux. And anytime you have a team event, it it it's fun because it's different. There's different tactics, mm -hmm. but you're still playing a game of Malifaux, which is definitely something that appeals to me. And then we're also going to get into just some reactions because you also were at the foe down in Houston. So we'll talk about that a little bit and then we'll cap things off just with how you and I are both finding gaining grounds for, mm -hmm. but before we get into all that, make sure that you guys are supporting the content, the podcast. You can do that through, uh, just consuming our content. We have a discord that is very active. We seem to have a lot of uh, Europeans, a lot of Aussies and Kiwis. So literally I'll be sitting there. You know, if I stay up at like two o'clock in the morning, I want to check out the discord. Sometimes there's something going on because we have people overseas talking. And then, uh, yeah, you can check out our Twitter. We got the YouTube channel. And then finally, if you want to support us directly, you can do that. Patreon.com slash reach. But why are we can support us for a little as a dollar? And then if you want to support us when you buy stuff directly from weird, you can use our affiliation link at give us your money, please. Thank you dash weird.com slash rage quit wire. And all of that is great, but patrons get the coolest content. We don't have patrons on today because this is more a plug for Jesse, 
<laughs> but uh, usually the patrons get to hang out while we're uh, recording live. And then uh, they can also get the content a day early. And then they get some uh, opportunities to get free stuff for being a patron. So we appreciate them as always. So, uh, Jesse, it's early in the morning. So I, I assume you're not drinking a beer right now. No, I have a uh, cold brew coffee. There you go. <laughs> I'm drinking the a good old diet Mountain Dew, which probably is worse than a beer, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, let's let's talk about the event first, because I think that's the most exciting thing that. Well, maybe not, but it's it's pretty it's an awesome event. I didn't get to go last year. I went the first year that you ran it. And just to give people an idea of the event, it is in Providence, Rhode Island, or right outside of it. I think it's Warwick, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's in Warwick. It's like the ten minute Uber from the Providence airport. Yeah, and you and the cool thing is it's all in the hotel, right? So you have your yeah. hotel room from the block downstairs is where the event is lots of large rooms food down there Uh, they got a small restaurant there there's stuff within walking distance so you don't need a car when you're doing this and when you fly in the hotel actually has a taxi that brings you back and forth so you don't even need to spend an uber so i went year one and i mean it was a pretty big tournament when you ran it. i think you had you know what maybe like 10 teams and and 30 people almost first year Yep, I think we had 10 teams and it was like 32 or 33, something like that, people yep. for the Open. And then it was very similar the second year. Um, I think we had the same number of teams and uh, we ended up coming in a little bit higher on the uh, Open. Uh, I think we ended up at around like 35 or 36. So this year I'm hoping to hit that magical 40 mark. And a little, little bit of friendly competition between me and Mr. Bowman from the uh, Lone Star Fodown for who's going to have <laughs> the biggest Malifaux event of the year. Uh, he does have the benefit of uh, his being not attached to a con, uh, which is a, a phenomenal thing indeed, uh, just because there's a little bit less kind of overall expense to attending. Um, but still, I, I got to I gotta beat his number, man. He put up some big numbers at the Fodown this year, and yeah... Yeah, and I, I don't think that being attached to a con, especially one like Captain Con's bad, though, because you pay for the weekend badge, which is like if you don't want all the extra crap, it's like 60 bucks. If you want the T-shirts and stuff, it's like 100. Uh, so that gives you the whole weekend. Plus, there's vendors there, though. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to be playing most of the weekend. But when I walked around in between rounds and after, I mean, they had some cool like you get army cases there. There were other cool games there. I actually looked at some conquest models when I was there last time. Uh, I guess you guys have local stores that'll set up shops too. Mm-hmm. So there is some like Malifaux stuff there as well. So I, I think that's one of the benefits of the cons though, where, you know, most nerds aren't just in it for Malifaux. They're interested in all this other stuff too. So it's cool to get, um, get the opportunity to look at all that extra stuff too. Yeah, for sure. They've got a pretty expansive schedule of um, other events, demos. I mean, they have stuff going all the way into yeah, they have, the week. They have raffles. The they have like board games mm-hmm. at you know late night board games and crap. And yeah, it's it's a cool time. Yeah, there's stuff going on all hours of day and night. So yep. just with a cut, if you don't mind, I could kind of chime in with a couple of details on yeah, Captain ahead. Con this year. Captain Con this year is going to be held February 2nd to February 4th, 2024. That's going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, I, myself, am going to be running, as usual, the Malifaux Content Creators Invitational. 
uh, otherwise known as the MCCI. Uh, that's going to be held on Friday the 2nd, and it is a two-person Teams event um, that's going to be open to any podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, or anybody else who creates Malifaux-specific or general board, uh, general board or wargaming content that also has a Malifaux component. Um, last year we had 10 teams. I believe the year before we also had 10 teams. I'd really like to try and hit the 14 team, uh, cap for the event this year. And we already have quite a few folks that have signed up to attend, um, going through the, the list real quick. Of course, we have the one and only rage quit wire radio. Yeah. Uh, I'll be attending as well, and uh, I actually do have a local uh, by the name of Derek who is tremendously helpful and has offered to uh, kind of volunteer to help run the MCCI. That way, I'm still going to be able to play on the Boring Conversation team. Uh, we also have the Capital City Crew, the Bayou Breakdown, Bad Foe Haku, Malifaux University have all committed to attending, and we're going to have a bunch more folks that commit in the probably coming weeks uh we have another one two three four five six seven teams that are um maybes so i mean if we can get all seven of those maybes in and some of them are pretty hard maybes um that's already going to be putting us at about 13 teams versus nice. the 14 cap which would be awesome awesome yeah and I, <laughs> you talking about the malifo university guys i felt bad the year that we that i went the first year because I think one of the Malifaux University guys had like a broken wrist or hand or something. And then yeah. on top of that, lost his models like flying in. And I was like, man, that's a rough go right there. He had to borrow models just wherever he could. Yep. Yep. That was John Sundagan. And uh, he was a real trooper. Um, yep. Toughed it out and ended up ha playing the entire event. Uh, and they actually both attended last year as well, which was just fantastic. Yeah, and if you want to play in this, but you're like, oh, man, I, I love team tournaments, but, you know, I don't have a podcast or something. It's like, dude, just start a blog up real quick and be like, Jesse, yeah. I really want to play in this, and he'll hook you up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, you know, we have had folks attend before they've even had official releases. Um, oh, so, like, Perfect. as an example, the Students of Conflict last year attended before they even had any episodes out. Um, and it was fantastic to have them there. And I'm, I'm really hoping that we get to see them this year as well. Yeah. And um, another thing to ahead. keep in mind with that, too, is with seeing how many people are signing up and Jesse's going to be like, oh, we got, you know, X people now for the content creators. Keep in mind, that's more Malifaux players that are going to show up for the regular tournament on Saturday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. So the more the bigger number there, the more people are going to be like, oh, man, this is going to be a bigger event, you know, for the weekend. Yeah, I mean, if we end up capping out at 14 teams, then assuming everybody that plays in the MCCI plays in the Open, then we're already at 28, and that's before any public participation. Well, you know, awesome. with some of the folks that you know there in the Northeast, Jesse, you know, sometimes they get uh, karaoke too hard and tend to not make it the next yeah, day. You know, that's usually Saturday. Oops, it, excuse me, Saturday night. It, it so. usually is. It contributes to some uh, maybe round four drops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we shall see if that ends up happening again this year. But yeah, uh, so I, I'm I'm chiefly concerned with the Saturday morning attendance, the Sunday morning attendance. Well, that's up to the attendees. Yeah. So what? Give a quick spiel, real quick, on how you run the uh, not how you run the team tournament, but when me and my partner for the team tournament get to the table against our opponents, mm -hmm. how do you, how does that work for 
Matt like declaring who's playing on what board and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, this one important note regarding the MCCI is that this is not a doubles tournament, meaning that both players on each team aren't playing on the same table. Uh, we actually have uh, tables set up side by side. Um, that way you've got four, uh, two total tables for four players. And what's going to happen is... All right, so when the teams get to the set of two tables, um, we're going to determine which one is Team A, which one's Team B. Uh, on the first round, that's going to be determined randomly. On subsequent rounds, it's going to be whichever team is in the lead. Um, before anything else, every player is going to declare a master, uh, but importantly, not the title. You're just going to declare the master. And then once masters are declared, team A or the lead team is going to select one of their masters and put it down on table one. Uh, team B then chooses one of their masters to put onto table one. And then the two remaining masters that haven't been chosen default to table two. Uh, and then from that point, play proceeds as normal. So essentially what this means is that the team A or the lead team gets to basically pick which master they want into which scheme and strategy pool because importantly it's going to be a shared uh scheme pool between the two tables but the strategies are going to be different on each table so there's a little bit of flexibility where the lead team is going to get to choose their table and they're going to uh in, a, in essence choose the strategy that they're playing into but then the, the second team or team b actually gets to decide what the matchup is going to be so there's a significant advantage for both uh player or both teams and i think that that really kind of makes for a fairly interesting pairing process i know there were some initial concerns that like team a is always going to have a significant advantage because they get to choose their um their table and strat but being able to choose your matchup out of the two masters that you've declared i think is a pretty significant benefit as well yeah because the strategies you can get in you know you can get a lot out of that but if there's an op and you know you're it's not going to happen with each pairing but there's going to be sometimes where it's like ooh, that's a real silver bullet against that crew I, and you if you're the second team and you get to definitely make sure like oh yeah that's happening whereas if you're the second team and you see the silver bullet against your opponent against you and your uh, teammate you can avoid it. So there are matchups where it's like, this is horrible if I play against this. Yeah. And it gives you a, a, there's a little bit of player skill that comes in too. So like, just as an example for round one of last, uh, last year, table one was covert and corner table two was cursed objects and standard. And then the scheme pool was in your face, hidden martyrs, sabotage, breakthrough and spread them out. So shared scheme pool, but different deployment and strategy. So, you know, if you're playing one, one of these masters that's really good into Covert, for instance, and you've got your Silver Bullet counterpick on the opposite side of the table, but that particular crew isn't quite as good in Covert or quite as good in Cursed, you can play maybe a slightly less ideal strategy knowing that your opponent is going to have a tougher time with that as well. So they might be more apt to kind of zig when you're zagging. Yep. So yeah, it, cool. it makes it very, like I said, just interesting with that. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think with the teams, did you guys have a couple teams tied in the first two years or no? Or did you have a definite winner? So it's the way that we actually do the scoring is instead of determining a team winner and a team loser, essentially each player's individual game scores are factored individually. Uh, and then just added together for the total team score. So there isn't necessarily like a 
like team a wins this round and then gets you know three points and then team b loses because what would end up happening is you would end up with a lot of rounds where one one player wins one player loses and then you have a draw on both sides and it makes it very difficult to kind of like figure out standings yep um so by just essentially adding them together and together and giving each team per round a possible six points, that really helps to kind of break up um, the standings quite a lot. So yeah. it work out better in previous Yeah, years. and that's something teams might want to think about, too, is just like, oh, which which matchup gives me the best opportunity for maybe differential like improvement mm-hmm. and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting when you get into uh, a, a team event like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that's going to be really interesting coming into this year is going to be how close <laughs> the uh, Ashes of Malifaux book is to release um, versus when the event happens, because I was kind of expecting to see a release date for it uh, this weekend on the Black Friday sale. You were and wrong. we did not. So we <laughs> might not actually end up seeing Ashes of Malifaux until a couple of weeks before the event, which is going to be very interesting. Oh, boy. Here come all the proxies. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's one thing that I'm going to have to be putting some kind of mental uh, cycles into uh, and just seeing like, okay, is there a reasonable cutoff where I can say, all right, well, there's literally two weeks before the event. Should I even allow Ashes of Malifaux models because they just haven't really been out? And then honestly, what ends up happening is anybody who is involved in the playtest, either as a participant or like a a playtest partner uh, would end up with a pretty significant advantage over the the rest of the community because, you know, a couple of weeks isn't really enough time to parse out all these new models. Um, So that's that's, going to be something I really have to think about. Yeah. And we'll see what they do with it. I mean, weird's not, uh, yeah, they're not the most, or (laughs) I don't know. They just, they, they might release this in February or they might release it in March. Who knows? It's like, who knows? Uh, yep. So we what, shall see. So what about the uh, the big event then? So you got a two-day event. Sure. Yeah. So the big one is going to be Booty and Plunder. Uh, that's a 50-stone, two-day, five-round event. Um, pretty typical. Uh, last year, we ended up having to do a couple of house rules because of some goofy rules interactions with a few specific models that have since been resolved. So don't need to worry about that this year. Um, I'm actually going to be going to my first Gaining Grounds 4 event next weekend on December 2nd. Uh, that's actually going to be at Haven Games and Hobbies in Enfield, Connecticut. So if any listeners happen to live around there and feel like making the drive, uh, I myself will be there. I believe Sam from the Danger Planet is planning on being there along with some others. And I'm really looking forward to my first kind of GG4 tournament experience. And that's actually going to inform a lot of my decision making for the pools for um, the Captain Con events. Yeah, and um, I, I think GG four. So me, I I definitely have a lot more games than you right now. I think into GG four, yeah. I've probably played ten games already of GG four. Yeah, yeah, I've got and, like three. So, and yeah. man, it's pretty interesting out there. Like, like the votes one's cool. I like ballot stuff in. Uh, mm-hmm. Cloak and Dagger is really interesting. I'm still trying to figure out solid strategies for that one because the markers get placed, but you can also steal them off your opponent. Uh, Plant Explosives, if you played for a while, you know how that works. And uh, Raid the Vault's cool. It's I lost a lot of models playing a game the other the other day and uh, was still able to get the strat points because the back ones nice. count for two now, which is yeah. really helpful. Yeah, I think it's a good move for sure. So, so it's a it's a it's a fun GG in my opinion yeah. right now. 
I'm looking forward to putting together pools for it. What I'm probably going to end up doing is putting together preliminary pools with the disclaimer that they're subject to change uh, based on my experiences basically between now and the end of the year. Uh, and then I plan on having the pools locked in 100% by the beginning of January, like probably first week of January, so that folks have plenty of time to practice. Um, ideally, excuse me, ideally, I'd like to have them locked in by the last week of uh, December. So because, you know, folks have holiday breaks a lot of times and giving them the opportunity to get some practice games in seems like a, a good idea. Yeah. Um, and it, and five rounds. So you're going to have one of these strats that's a duplicate. Yeah. And initially, I'm kind of sitting here like, man, I kind of want to see like votes twice because, you mm -hmm. know, stuff the ballots is pretty fun. I don't know if you play yeah, that. I think one it's yet. pretty fun. Um, time will tell. I'm leaning towards plant explosives being the duplicate because yeah. I'm a little biased towards it. It's kind it's of a my solid favorite. and it's a goodie in a in an oldie. Yeah, it's a it, and I think the changes they've made to it are fantastic. But um, kind of before we get into that, the only other things that I would make mention of regarding Captain Con are um, you can uh, pre-order your badges and book your hotel rooms. The block is open right now. Yep. I would highly encourage you to book your room as soon as possible. The, the block is pretty big. They don't generally run out like some other large tournaments, uh, but there's no reason not to book it ahead of time. And most importantly, if you are planning on attending and you have not purchased your badge yet, please, 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 please consider purchasing it before the end of November. Um, they actually do a preliminary tally of how many tickets are sold for each event on Monday, December 4th. And the more tickets that we have pre-sold for the Malifaux events, the more prize support we're going to be able to get from the con. So please, if you haven't done it, please consider it. It would really be tremendously helpful for me because, I mean, you know, myself, anybody who runs a big event like this, you know, Doug Bowman can certainly attest to this. Um, we, we put a lot of our own money into getting additional prize support uh and especially for a con like this where your badge fees and your event registration fees don't go straight to the organizer to pay for that stuff a lot of times it's just not recouped we do it for the love of the community and i'm not trying to say that i'm some great you know martyr for for malifaux but yeah uh let's be real here any help you guys can give me would be tremendously helpful yeah and i'm and looking at the the cost of everything i mean like I said, you can get the badge for like 60 bucks if, if you don't want all the swag. 100 bucks if you do want it. So, I mean, a lot of people like that stuff. And I think total, I don't know, what do the events cost for the Malifaux tournament? Um, like, I, I believe there's no registration fee for the content creators invitational. Um, that one, basically, you just only come if, if you're allowed to and the con doesn't provide us yep. any support for the MCCI. Um, for Booty and Plunder... I think the ticket fee is like, I don't know, I don't even know. It's like 10 or 15 bucks. Yeah, it wasn't like lot. that. It so, wasn't a lot of money. I mean, and you're getting five rounds of Malifaux for that. It, I mean, it's some people probably pay more at their local game store for a tournament. So yeah. it, it's not that bad. And then the ho the hotel rooms are very affordable. I mean, I even booked an extra day. And I think we're for me and the guy that's staying in that, we're still under 800 bucks. And that's split in two ways. So that's very affordable. Some guys you can... You can do split three ways and you're only paying maybe 200 bucks for the weekend, especially if you're only staying through uh, Sunday. So the hotels are very affordable, too. Yeah. And I just checked the ticket charge for the uh, booty and plunder event. It's 20 bucks. Yeah, it's still not bad. Nope. Nope. And the amount of prize support that we get is uh, pretty significant 
both from the con and from some of the sponsors, which I'm hoping we'll plan to sponsor again. Um, but any of those additional ticket fees um, are going to go towards helping me, you know, basically cover the cost of the the price support and the terrain and all yeah. the other things, the incidentals. Yeah, and I, I would say if you are if you're looking for somebody to split a room with. I know I was on your Discord, Jesse, and there was a few mm-hmm. people asking about splitting room costs. So, because uh, you got a specific channel for Captain Con, so I know if yes. you're one of those people, you just put it on there, be like, "Hey, you know, looking to split a room? Anybody? Uh, anybody interested?" Yep, yep. And before we close out on Captain Con, to Pete's point, I would say if you're interested in in staying in the know, even if you're unsure whether or not you're going to attend then please feel free to hop onto the Boring Conversation Discord and check out the Captain Con channel. There's going to be more event details posted in there probably this weekend. It's one of my goals for the uh, Thanksgiving weekend is to try and get as much of that stuff nailed down as possible. Uh, For those of you who still use Facebook, uh, we do also have a Malifaux events at Captain Con Facebook page. And then if you just search for, you know, hashtag Captain Con, there's going to be a ton of stuff that comes up. So there you go. That's all I got. Yeah, and then I think the... uh last thing I was just going to mention, which will kind of also segue into the foe down is the prize sports definitely really good. The last time I went, and I'm sure last year as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get kind of like a, you know, your pick of the table, depending on how things go. There was a raffle. I think the first year I went, yep. uh, weird put in a lot as far as prize support. So there was a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. We try to make a good event. Yeah. So looking at the foe down, you uh, you got to go there, I think, for your for mm-hmm. your birthday present there, Jesse. It was. It was my <laughs> birthday weekend and I already have some time blocked out for next year. So basically, as long as Doug plans on doing the foe down the same weekend, uh, there's a pretty good chance that my wife and kids are just not going to see me any of my birthday weekends ever. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know how they feel about that, but. Long yeah, story short, it's how did you feel going playing. to that without being a uh, tournament organizer? Usually, you're kind of helping run things. Uh, yeah, it was cool actually. Um, this year is the first year that I've ever gone to large events as an attendee and not as an organizer. I went to the Nova Open for the uh, open event and then also for the uh, US FO Tour Masters. Uh, and I went to the Lone Star Foe Down for the open event there, and it was just an absolute blast. I had a great time. Yeah, I got I got a little late to the party on uh, on Friday, but because uh, I got there and like there were, there was probably about a dozen games going on just of people free playing, and I was just yeah. like, man, wish I got here a little earlier, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I ended up getting um, a practice game in against Noble from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, had a fantastic time. I think we did. Um, I played Mayfang 2 in Thunders versus his Yoko 2 in Thunders, if I remember correctly. Man, there yeah, was, was a lot a of 10 time. Thunders at that event, man. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh I don't I can't remember what the 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 final standings were, but there were more Thunders players than any other faction. I think there was like nine or something. I don't yeah, even know. Yeah, I was just like what is going on? Why are there so many of these 10 Thunder turds running around, man? Ugh. Yeah. I ended up yeah, catching them twice. My big plan was that I was going to switch to Explorer Society for the new season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have you know, like a whole idea for what I'm actually going to be playing. But with uh, some of the new models that I'm really planning on using a lot of not being out yet, um, there's a good chance that I'm probably going to stay on Thunders for the uh, MCCI. And then after that, switch over to Explorers. 
Yeah, and actually, to tell you the truth, part of the down actually factored into what I was going to do. So I, I shared this on the other episode that'll come out after this one that Dixon and I recorded. But when I was at my local game store, I was just kind of looking at this Yon Lowe box. I'm like, man, Yon Lowe is pretty effing cool. And I was sitting there like, okay, so if I was going to play Yon Lowe because the models are cool and stuff, nobody's playing Rezzers at the store. I was like, okay, is Yon Lowe better in Rezzers or 10 Thunders? I'm like, I think he's better in Rezzers. So I was like, okay, so if I was going to play Rezzers, you know, what other keyword would I get? So then I start kind of spitballing. And, you know, next thing, you know, I have like Yon Lowe, I have, you know, Molly, and apparently I got Reva because I want to try out the dirtiness. So, um, yeah, I'm just kind of like, okay, I guess I'm going to play Rezzers for a little bit. <laughs> but also at the Fodown, there was only like two Rezzer players. So I was like, I don't know why people aren't playing Rezzers. They got a lot of real, like really good things. <laughs> I think Rezzers sometimes comes down to aesthetics. Some people just aren't into those the way those keywords look. Yeah. Um, I pulled up the event stats. It was 11 Thunders players. So I was undershooting by a fair bit. So 11 Thunders, 9 Neverborn, and then the rest of them were all like 6-ish, down to only 2 Explorers. Yeah, 4 Explorers. Yeah. So, yeah, you d- you ended up doing pretty well, Jesse. I think you went, what, 4-2? and two? Uh, I went 4-1-1. and one. Four, Okay. Uh, so I came in 4th place overall. Yep. Yeah, that's how you outpace the rest of us 4-2 and two plebes. Yeah. I ended up getting a tie versus uh, Christian from the uh, uh, or the uh, Houston meta. Uh, he ended up playing, uh, what did he do? He did uh, Seamus 1 with 2nd Master McMorning 1. And he just, we managed to pull out a 5-5 tie. So, tell you what, that tie kind of got me a uh, pretty, good, pretty good spot did versus you, the did rest you, of the Did field, you do the so. old uh, day one, I'm going to, you know not play as hot and then get in the mid bracket and then just rise your way to the top. And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of how it always ends up being for me. I ended, I won my first game by a, a fair margin, uh, lost my second game by, I think a point and then tied my third game. And then I ended up winning all three of my games in uh, day two, man. So, I tell you what, besides playing Doug round one from uh danger planet, because he kind of knew what Sandeep did, but he wasn't really ready for it, so he got kind of surprised a little bit. But besides that game, none of my games were were blowouts. They were all close. They were all grindy. I played a lot of really good opponents, and I was just like, I think my differential was very small. I think I only had like a four, maybe six VP differential. It was pretty. It was rough going. It was grind fest for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I had a lot of great games, and. Um... I, I did bring enough stuff, enough uh, keywords that I could theoretically have Scorpius. Um, I knew that I that would not have been a smart choice for me, just just because my experience within Thunders is kind of restricted to a couple of keywords, and I have a passing familiarity with how to play the other ones effectively. But I just know that if I had tried to Scorp, uh, I would have ended up probably not even coming in top 10. So Yeah, I think most people, you're better off just playing your best keyword in that moment. I, I, I've kind of gotten past, like the Scorpius thing is a cool idea and I'm, I know enough to be okay, but I usually play, like especially day two, I just play mm-hmm. opponents that are either equal to or better than me. And if I play a keyword I'm less familiar with, they're just going to trounce me. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, I just need to play play my good stuff. I kind of came into the event with a couple of specific goals in mind, and I ended up accomplishing most of those. 
I the only thing I didn't get to do was play a Misaki one game just because I'm so high on her and yeah. I it just the matchups and the tables that I ended up on there just was never one that I felt super confident playing her into it sure uh, the one time that I ended up playing Misaki it, which was a fantastic pool for her it was round two I ended up getting paired into a guild player that declared Marshall and I'm like well crap. well balls <laughs> so played Misaki too had a great game I could have won that one but I did make a few mistakes and uh Greg my opponent was a really really solid player who bounced back from a couple of nasty swings so props to Greg for pulling that game out by a point yeah was this was the foe down the first event where you got to use clocks in a tournament yes so how'd, so, you, how'd you feel about that <laughs> So before this event, I, I've always been, I've never played on a clock ever. Um, none of the war games that I've ever played have used clocks. I didn't play War Machine Hordes. I didn't play Guild Ball. And I know that they were quite prevalent in those. Oh yeah. I've never even played chess on a clock uh, and I'm not a huge chess player anyway. So I was always very anti-clock for no good reason. Uh, I, Just, I didn't have any I don't like it with and I don't know why. Exactly. I was very much that way. So in preparation for this event, I decided that I was going to, you know, play a couple of games of, you know, practice games on clock, but all of them were on, um, what do you call it? Vassal, Vassal? which like, yeah, it's weird. I, it, the experience of clocks on Vassal is very different than the experience of clocks so in real life. The clocks in real life, it, it is purely muscle memory. Like once you get yeah. used to the switch after each activation, it's very flu it's very fluid. You've, it's not hard to remember. Right. And there's both a visual and an audio cue to your opponent that you flipped the clock yep. over, which I feel like really helps keep the game on pace. And actually, after playing six rounds on clock, because you know I didn't have to do them every single round, but we chose to. Yep. Um, I fucking love them. They're great. <laughs> it's. It made the game so much fun and feel so dynamic. Um, there were still, I think, I think there was still one game that we didn't finish. Um, but, I mean, we finished all five rounds in every single other game, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. I, I just feel like I really, really, really like the way that the game feels when you're using a clock uh, in real life. And quite frankly... I intend on continuing to use them for even even for casual games every single time that I get the opportunity to, um, even if we're just doing it just for, you know, practice moving the clock back and forth and not yep. doing any sort of binding time rules. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Well, because the thing is, one, in tournaments, Malifaux is a game designed to go five rounds. Like, it is mm -hmm. designed to score all the way to five there is end game points and you can score each round besides round one or turn one before that so clocks help facilitate that because in all my games i finished no problem i think most of my games i had at least 15 25 minutes left i was playing at a good i was playing the same master though so i was pretty sand deep like i know how to do this thing um and most of my opponents were the same way we finished all the games nobody clocked out and that that takes away a lot of the feel bad of not finishing a game of Malifaux. Uh, it also rewards you just getting used to the clock and your keyword. It rewards people who know their keyword. Well, uh, it helps honestly. And then in game, I feel like you can use that sometimes to pressure your opponent to be like, 
here's what I'm doing, slap back to them. And they haven't even thought about their next activation. So there's a little bit of gamesmanship there. And uh, yeah, the big thing is, I think you just get to finish games of Malifaux, which is huge in tournaments. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, one of the things that I'm real bad for is I have the tendency where if I if I don't really know what to do, I can kind of fall into the think tank. And a lot of times the think tank for me isn't really even very productive. I just end up getting these kind of circular thoughts that are kind of messy and I'm not really getting anything out of it. And most of the time when I finally come out of the think tank, I make the wrong decision anyway. So I, I feel like the clocks are an active disincentivizer for people to do that and they'll really make the game more engaging for both players because i'm sure you know pete and i have played a couple of games and there have been some times when i've done that i've played you know we've been on vassal and i've been like crap i don't know what i'm gonna do and then i sit there and i just stare at the screen for two or three or four or five (laughs) minutes and pete's just on the other end like all right let's uh let's go go here let's go yeah whereas if you're on a clock you're like okay i mean it's your time i mean yeah you can use it yeah exactly and I, I, I think that if you aren't used to playing on clock, there are times in certain games where you do want to go into the tank a little bit and it's okay. Cause you realize this is my time. And I did that in round six. I was get so I was, I was angry because not of a Malifaux thing. I was angry because my son kept texting me asking for things that <laughs> needed to be addressed. And I was sitting there trying to play a game. Uh, so I was getting kind of mad at that. And then things in the first two turns weren't going my way. I had Mecha Meemaw thrown in the middle of my crew and I'm like, how do I even deal with this? And, and I was, I was just sat there. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to quit this game. So I need to stay here for a second. So I just thought for five minutes or so, like, okay, if I'm going to win this game, I can't be here fighting Maw. I need to go somewhere else. So I just started tossing my models around with Sandeep and uh, yeah, I ended up winning the game because I just took that extra time to be like, okay, if I'm going to win, what do I need to do? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Long story short, I love clocks now. Um, one of the things that I actually need to do between now and Captain Con is kind of budget out enough money that I can buy clocks to provide. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the things that I'm going to be using the prize support for. Um, basically paying myself back for for buying clocks for the event. Yeah. Um, one quick additional plug with regards to that, if you don't mind, Pete, now that I think of it, and I should have mentioned it. this before, Um the if anybody has purchased anything through the boring conversation um affiliate link for the weird web store uh or plans to do so anytime through the end of january all of the commissions that i end up getting uh between now and then i'm going to be putting into uh either prize support or event support for the captain con events and uh just i think yesterday or the day before I finally decided that it was time to launch a Patreon for the Boring Conversation um, podcast and YouTube channel. So the other thing that I'm doing there is any Patreon support that I get, again, between now and January is going to go straight into event support. And then after that, I'm going to be using it for, you know, covering hosting fees and recording, you know, uh, recording suite fees and that kind of thing. So check it out. Yeah. So how, I mean, how often, cause I know you guys have been releasing more content. How, what's mm-hmm. the plan of the amount of content you guys are releasing each month? Yeah, for sure. So I still intend on doing a monthly podcast release. Uh, I'm also going to be potentially trying to release some bonus content. Uh, not, it's not going to be like, um, paywalled, uh, for patrons only. I'm still any, any content that I release, 
is is going to be open to the general public aside from that's what i do as well yeah i mean i might do like some you know occasional patron specific like q a episodes or something like that but they're still going to get released to uh everybody so the plan is that i'm going to be doing even more game streaming uh i've done a lot of work recently on kind of updating and modernizing the game streaming setup that i have uh, that way it's going to just be a little bit more clear for all players what's going to be activating um, it's going to be easier to follow the flow of the game uh, so the plan is that i'm going to be releasing at least one probably at least two live stream games per month plus one podcast release and then occasional um kind of additional podcast releases as i nice. have time nice yeah and getting back to the foe down so I mean, that must have made you feel pretty good competitive wise that you could kind of hang around some of, you know, maybe people that are usually doing pretty well in, in events. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was some pretty stiff competition and especially where I haven't to, you know, the point that we made before played in a lot of events. I've mostly been organizing them. It was pretty cool to be able to sneak up to fourth place. My goal was, you know, I wanted to hit top 10. I wanted to play at least one Misaki uh, one game. I wanted to play at least one Mayfang two game. And I succeeded in three of those. Uh, I got the Mayfang two game in. I hit top 10. Uh, I just didn't get the Misaki one game in. So yeah, I, I, I was pretty happy. I, I One, I was happy because I com was competitive in all my games, even the two losses. I only lost by two VPs. Mm -hmm. um, but also going four and two with Sandeep, I felt really good about that just to show that that keyword has some legs because I, I feel like a lot of people hadn't been playing that in the US. So I'm, I was happy to give it some exposure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I know we kind of talked about the clocks thing already, and it sounds like you and I are both pretty high on them. Yep. Um, any anything else you wanted to add? Um, I mean, I prefer clocks at Malifaux events now. I've always complained about if you go back. I mean, we got over 150 episodes of Malifaux now, but if you go back to some of the earlier ones, I know I did some heavy complaining about some of my tournament games where I think I got to we got to basically one activation in turn three. And I was just and it's because and, you know, the person didn't do it on purpose, I'm sure. But it literally was like the person sat there. I'm going to activate Lucius. And they sat there thinking for I'm, I'm telling you, it was 10 minutes. And then he was like, oh, I got a pass token pass. And I was like. You're effing kidding me, right? Like, <laughs> right. And then, of course, then he doesn't have a pass token, so he ends up going right back into the tank the next time he has to activate a model. Yeah, like, and yeah. yeah, and didn't give any thought on one because I was playing Maw, so I was literally like, okay, I'm gonna horrible holler, take two swings at you, put a bonus down, okay, go. And then he was like, hmm, I was like, really? So you haven't given any thought on what you want to do? So, and if you're on clock, it's like, okay, you decided to play a new keyword. You're going to be punished for this. I can still use all of my time. And if you don't have clocks, it just happens. As a TO, I used to run guild ball events and I ran a couple before clocks were a big thing. And sometimes you'd get new players and the new players are taking up like 70% of the you know game time, whereas the veteran player knows what they're doing. So they're only playing 30% of the time. And Nobody wants to play a game like that. And like yeah, I, I said, Malifaux is designed for five five turns. Yeah, 
yeah, I think that probably I'm I'm going to be looking at the Lone Star Fodown clock rules as well as the, like the Pacific Northwest ones and the Malifaux World Series ones, and I'm going to be debating maybe making some adjustments to them. But I don't need to go into that right now. I yeah. actually am going to be recording an episode this weekend uh, specifically about clock talk and uh, dig, doing kind of more of a deep dive on that. Yeah, so. for sure. So uh, the other things that I'd be interested in getting your feedback on, if, if you think that we have time for it, yeah, would be I, I got um, nothing else to do today. <laughs> nice. Um, would be just kind of your thoughts on some of the other rules that were implemented for the foe down, um, specifically bans uh, or any other, you know, kind of primary rules adjustments like, you know, singles limited, that kind of thing. In this case, it was just bans. And then what you thought of the terrain density, uh, because I found that that was significantly different than a lot of other events that I've been to. So I honestly, bands I love, um, I think on when you play against top tier opponents, I think bands are really another good layer to the game. There was a lot of times where against all these effing 10 Thunders players, man, I was like, I don't want to see any of this. I don't want to see the Monkey King. I don't want to see any of this crap. I don't want to see Snorlax. It's like I'm going to ban Story. Or, you know, if I was playing something with a lot of Demise, maybe I ban Monk because I don't want all the anti-Demise tech. Uh, somebody playing against me banned uh, whatever Loweth's keyword's name is um, with Witness or whatever they are. Witness, yeah. So I think it adds another good layer. Uh, I also didn't get to play the Corfi duet most of the weekend because everybody was banning... Yeah. Uh, performers well, yeah. performers so you don't get cassandra in yep. the duet yeah. yep so and that and that was interesting to me because i was like okay i gotta take this list and tweak it a little bit you know i've been practicing with it but you know it got banned uh so bands are are good and i think if you are a newer player it doesn't affect you as much because i think most newer players are playing in keyword anyways so i don't think that impacts them uh, mm -hmm. and honestly I, I think it's just fine. They're like, oh, I guess they, their bans are not going to be as useful because they don't know a lot of times like what to ban. Um, yeah. And honestly, sometimes you ban the wrong thing. I played a, a game against a very good player who played Shen Long. And I was like, man, do I? And it was cursed. So I was like, do I ban? I feel like they might drop Misaki as a double master. And I don't want to see that. So do I ban that or do I ban story? And I banned Story. He totally brought Misaki. I should have banned it. And I was like, yep, that was a misplay on my part. And I, I lost that game actually too. So um, yeah, yeah. So I think it's an interesting layer to the game. And it it makes, it makes it where you see like if there is a broken combo in the game or a really strong combo, it gives you an opportunity to defend against that if you're aware of it. So I, I find myself kind of of two minds when it comes to bans. You know, on the one hand it gives a little bit more reward to high level players especially playing into other high level players so it yep. really makes for some interesting decision making at the the top tables of the event it also really helps to rein in some specific hires that might completely screw your crew you know there's some matchups where if somebody brings in like a second master mccabe you're in trouble because yeah. your crew just doesn't really have a way to deal with that. I I view that both as a good thing and a bad thing kind of at the same time. If you don't do bands and you don't do singles, you just do, you know, open rules. Yep. It 
it gives a lot of possibility for super frenzy sort of lists, which definitely exist in the game. Yep. You know, every single game that I didn't play Lindley uh, at the Fowdown, <laughs> story got banned. Yep. And for good reason, because, you know, I, I could, in theory, have played, I mean, you know, story of Tan Gyeong and story of Raijin and story of Sun Wukong in any crew. Yep. I wouldn't do that because I don't think it's the most efficient use of points, but all of those models serve their purpose even outside of their keyword and they can kind of buffer the weaknesses of any other keyword in the faction. I, it, I don't know. It's tough because if you have one crew, if you're playing a crew that has a significant weakness, like if I was saying, play, say playing Misaki. All right. So if I play Misaki and there's no, and there's no bands, it makes it very, very difficult for me to justify declaring her into guild or into outcasts because both of those factions have models that can easily be taken out of keyword that will crush my ability to play Misaki the way that I want to. So it covers my weaknesses, but it also doesn't really make me think outside the box and say like, OK, well, I guess now I have to play Misaki too and play a different game plan to kind of work around the matchup that I found myself yeah. playing into. I'm very conflicted on it. Um, coming into the Fowdown event, I was kind of very anti-bands because I I value a player's ability to flex um, around the weaknesses of their crew yeah. instead of just outright banning the stuff that is bad news for their crew. On the other hand, if I'm at top table and Misaki is my best pick into that particular matchup and my opponent's playing outcasts, like i mean it's a top table game like i should be able to work around that instead of just saying you can't use these toys that screw yeah, me up yeah but i think i think that is also you get the the skill of the player once that stuff's banned like it takes away the crutch maybe and forces you to be like okay they t so like if i'm playing resers okay they took away manos i need mm -hmm. somebody else that can do that job Okay, what do I reach for in the bag to do that job? So, I, yeah, and, I think and, and honestly, if you love Manos, it's like, OK, then just play Yon Low. It's like that way they can't ban it. Yeah, and it kind of cuts both ways because now I'm at the exact same top table game playing Misaki and I ban um, what's obliteration against my opponent. They were planning on taking Talos or Nothing Beast to beat me up. And now it's going to force them to play the crew that yeah. they would normally play. So well, like, and it, now it's like, okay, so I can't, I can't attack her when she's buried, but maybe I bring some marker removal now. That way I can at least get rid of the, some of the shadow markers to deal with it or bring Arik out of keyword. So you have gravity. Well, mm -hmm. yeah. So like on the one hand, it, and Misaki really hates no outcast, matter what, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, she really does. She really hates outcast because there's multiple keywords that can screw her up. I mean, yep. you can take a, the, uh, Draken Trooper, you can take yep. um, some obliteration models, you can take Mad Dog, like it's it's rough. Yep. So I think that ultimately I, I'm probably going to end up doing Bands 1 for the Malifaux events at Captain Con because I, I think that there's more benefits than downsides. Yeah. Um, but I have some more mental cycles to put into that. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, it just takes some of those crutches away. It really sucks when you play an opponent that you know because if they drop a keyword, you're like, oh, I know he likes bringing this out of keyword model. You just like Dixon played Lucius and I was like, yeah, I'm banning Nephilim. Like you're not getting a mature in there. Yeah. 
I'm not going to see that with Lucius. Get wrecked. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. Uh, the other um, thing was terrain that you were talking about. Yeah. So what was your impression on terrain? There was a lot more terrain on the tables at this event than I mean, I pride myself on putting together pretty good tables that are that have, you know, good uh, line of sight blockers that have a decent amount of different terrain types on them. Yep. Um, but some of the tables at this foedown were like far and away exceeding the terrain density that even I have put down on on tables before. Um, I there were a couple of rounds that it actually affected my decision making yeah. on which cruise I was going to play too. Um, I played Red Library for I think four of the six rounds during the foedown, and there were the the two games that I did not play them. Um, one of them in particular i chose not to because there was so much terrain on the table i knew i was going to have a hell of a time trying to move around all those 50 and 40 millimeter bases yep so did you run into any games especially playing sand deep with all the golems that the terrain was a problem and affected your gameplay uh so no actually and that's one of the reasons why i ran sand deep because sand deep has so many place effects and has like a 10 inch toss and flying models where he just doesn't really care about terrain. Like you can, I can unpack sand deep out of any, any map. There's no, like, it's no problem. Like it could be the whole map could be severe. And I think I'd be fine unpacking sand deep. Um, so that's actually one of the reasons why I was just like, you know, I'm not switching. Cause all, most of these boards are pretty heavy and, uh, sand deep doesn't care. The only thing sand deep cares about is line of sight. So as long as I kept that pretty tight, that was okay. And, that didn't, I didn't run into any of those issues. So I'm actually, I'm a fan of, of thick boards. I think that you don't want to make them all, all that way. So I think that there's some flexibility there. Um, because some of them were really dense boards. And I think that's fine because that, I, I think there should be benefits to crews who ignore more, ignore more terrain than, than other crews. I think Explorers is a good example of that, where Explorers like to see like a thick board uh, and other crews struggle with it. And when you come across a board like that, the board should impact the game. It should impact crew building. It should impact uh, where you put your opponent. I'm actually a fan of, there are some boards I'm a fan of things being symmetrical, meaning that there's no obvious advantage, but I'm also a fan of boards where it's like, yeah, that's a bad deployment zone because then that makes attacker and defender worthwhile. So uh, I, I I think it's great. I think Doug does a good job with his terrain. I, I don't feel like it was too much. I think it was, it was pretty good. If you're used to playing on Vassal, it wasn't big. The Vassal boards suck. So I don't think any of them sucked as much as the Vassal boards. <laughs> One of the things that I know some folks had talked about in the aftermath of the event, and I may, I'm very likely going to be doing it in my events as well, is, you know, one thing that Doug did that I think was fantastic was he had like a, a basically a printed picture of what yes, every single 100%. one of the boards looked like. 100%. And then it had definitions for all of the terrain you types do on that. the board. I am for sure going to be doing that. Um, my wife has a laminator for work, so... Uh, one of the things that I'm going to be working on doing is basically setting up all of my tables or as many of them as I can ahead of time, taking pictures and then putting out the terrain definitions. And then one thing that came up afterwards, and I think this would be a great idea because it it allows you to not um, it, it gives you more flexibility to not make super symmetrical tables is 
specifying on the sheet if it's a a corner or a flank deployment one specific corner is where the player on one side will take uh, and they don't have the option of flip-flopping um i don't I don't know if that's for sure required, but it allows you a lot more flexibility so that you don't end up inadvertently making a table that completely screws one player if their opponent picks um, the wrong opposite table corner. I, I'm playing around with the idea of whether or not that's necessary. How, how would an um, opponent get pretty screwed cool. by that? So, like, as an example, let's say you just put out your standard table, mm -hmm. and on one corner, there's a, you know, a gigantic forest that covers, you know, two-thirds of one of your deployment zone, of the deployment zone, if you end up getting stuck on that side. Yeah. So, the player with initiative looks at it and says, well, both of these two table corners I can work with, but if I take this one down here, then the, the table corner that my opponent's going to get is going to completely jack up their deployment. Um, it helps to kind of avoid that. Um, I think that there's a little bit of player skill that goes into that, and I, yeah. I don't know that I want to implement that for Captain Con, but I did think it was kind of a cool idea that offers more flexibility when kind of crafting the tables. Yeah, because I'm actually, like I said, I'm kind of against that just because it's like there should be bad deployment zones. like, And, sure. and if you have a slow crew, you might want to look at the board and be like, you know, because you pick deployment zones before crew selection. So yep. your your attacker says, I'm going to take this one. It's like, okay. Mm -hmm. Like, it, don't yep. pick a crew that's going to be in a bad deployment zone. It's like, you know, bring yeah, something that's a little faster, ride with me, fly with me, mm -hmm. uh, incorporal models, models that ignore, you know, severe terrain, and just, you know, work your way out of it. And, you know, you might have to double walk out of some stuff. That's just part of the game. Yeah just the way it is indeed so yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm a fan of the terrain in malifo is part of it where it's like that's part of the challenge of like you know you can use it to hide your models you can use it to defend yourself you can you know um find ways to get over and around it it's part of the puzzle mm -hmm. yeah for sure so before we kind of get off of the the down conversation and kind of circling back to clocks a little bit, one of the things that I was thinking about doing, I'll get your feedback on it live on the show, sure. is um, I was talking to Angel, uh, otherwise known as Captain Chin Chan. He was at the down event and we were talking about like the way that they manage clocks in his area and on vast, you know, Malifaux World Series. And he said that one of the things that they do in the Pacific Northwest is if there is a combined total of less than 15 minutes left on the two players' clocks that you don't start a new turn. Um, I think that 15 minutes is probably a bit too much, especially because you want to incentivize players to actually like finish the games. But starting a new turn when one player has 30 seconds left and the other one has two minutes is also not great. Um, so I was thinking about implementing like maybe a 10-minute combined um, minimum to start a new turn. But what, what are your thoughts on that, Pete? I would say maybe five combined, honestly, because if I have five minutes left on my clock, I can get a lot of activations out of that late. Cause you got to remember late game, there's usually not as many models. you usually have like actions that you just don't do. Cause it's not going to get you points. I mean, a lot of times turn five, I'm like, okay, this model's just gonna, you know, walk over that way. Done. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas this one's like, I'm going to walk over there, drop a scheme marker done. So it's turn five goes very fast. Like turn five is not a long turn. So I don't think sure. you need even five minutes a lot of times to finish that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I don't know. I've played a lot of games where you use the clock until it's not there. And 
you know, once time's done, time's done. And I mean, because if you have two minutes and your opponent has 30, they get probably two activations if they know what they're doing. If I have two minutes, I can probably, knowing I have two minutes, I can probably finish my my four or five models I have left. Like, I don't need a lot of time for that. Yeah, the big thing that made me want to do some sort of a minimum, be it five minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is, is that, you know, if if a player has less than a minute left on the clock, but they aren't completely clocked out, um, depending on whose turn the uh, or whose clock the setup and cleanup from the previous turn and setup for the new turn go on to, um, you know, you could theoretically go into that last turn with a minute left and then lose essentially all of it uh, just with, you know, shuffling, re-racking, and, and figuring out initiative for the next turn. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I, again, that's one of those things I got to do some thinking on. Yeah, maybe, combi- I don't know. I mean, I like I said, I didn't run out of time, so I don't have that issue because I'm always of the opinion that I'm going to play quick enough to where that's not going to happen. And if it does, I'm probably not winning that game anyways because I'm thinking too long on what I need to do. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in it. I'm, I'd probably go more to 5 or 10. 15 seems too long. You can yeah, easily play around in 15. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that that I would kind of have a feels bad for is if it's very, very, very low, uh, like, you know, three minutes left, four minutes left, and my opponent, you know, I have a, a minute and 10 seconds left and my opponent has the balance. Obviously, we've been playing pretty much in parity yeah. the whole time at that point, but... It ends up being on my clock while we do the re-rack. We get to initiative, um, and now I have 15 seconds left on mine. So I get you know an activation where I'm probably not even going to be able to flip any cards. And then my opponent gets to go with all the rest of their stuff, and it ends up being a two or a three points. You got to think, though. It balances out because they've already used their clocks at the end of round time. So mm-hmm. they've already been, if you want to call it punished, for the end of round time. And there was times at, at Houston where it was on me, but I finished mm-hmm. my in-between really quick, shuffled up, and my opponent's still dirtling around. I slap it to him and be like, all right, I'm done. Clock's on you now until yeah. you're ready to go. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it does, like, I think there's some consideration there, but. Yeah. Um, 15 I, is definitely too long. Though, yes, to it point. is. That's, yeah, that because yeah. you can finish. Like, if they have two minutes and you have, like, you know, mm-hmm. 13, it's like, yeah, yeah yeah that's not good <laughs> yeah, I, i'm i'm leaning towards probably doing something like eight minutes um i think that i'll test fair. it out see how you feel about it yeah i'm gonna test it out a couple of times in between because i'm not going to be finalizing the clock rules anytime soon mm-hmm. uh, i've got plenty of time for that <laughs> see what i did there yeah so, so we'll see we'll yeah. see i'll test it out so going into uh gg4 do you have any games in gg4 yet uh, i do yep yeah i've got about uh three games um, and then I'm, like I said, going to be going to a GG4 tournament uh, next weekend. So. I'm, I've been kind of get, getting some opinions on this because I'm curious of people's experiences so far. What do you think of Cloak and Dagger? I think Cloak and Dagger is pretty darn cool. It's it, it's a very interesting strategy. Um, the the whole I, I think that there's maybe some gaminess with how it actually plays out. I don't know. Well, it's probably I, I, the one that I'm the most tossed up. on. Well, I all think the, there's multiple ways the you can strategies play it. are solid. Yeah. I, I think that there's, that's why I think cloak and dagger is actually pretty interesting because mm-hmm. 
there's a lot of different ways you can play that out. Like I can, and probably the most effective way that I've found so far is you kind of like, you go at the flank once and you kind of try to get your intel from there, your opponent's place and wherever. So that's where your kind of schemey boys go. And then um, in the middle, you're kind of like, I feel like in the middle, there's kind of like this hesitancy to get intel markers until maybe like end of turn. And then there's also opportunities there to try and steal from your opponent. And I've also had it where I just put a model, you know, engaging an area and it's like, okay, you can't engage unless you get rid of this model. So you can do some blocking there. Uh, You you can interact, obviously, if you steal from a model that has one, even if you're engaged uh, by that model. So there's a lot of cool just gamemanship and playability there, I think. Yeah. And one of the things that I like about it, as opposed to some other kind of similar strategies that we've seen in the past, is the stipulation that a model that has had their Intel token stolen um, can't then take the Intel token back from the model that stole it. So you don't end up with like curses getting tossed back and forth between models. Yep. Um, but it also it still means that you have to be pretty careful about what point in the turn you actually steal somebody's intel token because yep. they could just kill you. Yeah. And a dead model, you don't get to use their intel tokens at the end of the turn. Yep. So you know you don't necessarily want to use that and say, okay, well you know it's first or second activation. I'm just going to steal your intel token because then they've got an entire turn to respond and try and kill that model, um, or have one of their other models move towards it and steal its intel token back. Yep. Like there's, it, it's very interesting. Um, I think that it's going to be a very AP intensive strategy. Well, and the fact that you also place the strategy four inches mm-hmm. when your opponent, you know, uses it. Yeah. That's also interesting. Cause like, okay, I'm going to move it towards my crew or I'm going to move it away from you. Um, yeah. And I did play a game on Monday where I had my schemers on the end and there was a couple of times I wanted to kill a model and I'm just like, well, I got to grab another Intel marker, so can't quite do that this turn. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's definitely one where it's... And I think this is sort of a theme across all of Gaining Grounds 4 is slowing down the killing. Yeah. Uh, Seems to be sort of a common theme across the entire packet. Um, There's still some killy pools that you can get, um, but I don't think that it's going to be quite as much of a you know mishmash in the middle smash each other's models up and then just control the center to win yeah yeah there's yeah. a lot of positional uh, a lot of scheme markers uh mm-hmm. a, and there's man i think there's a pool where if you have like power ritual protected territory and whatever the other three scheme marker one is or two scheme marker or more than your opponent ones is i mean there's some of those where it's like yeah there's going to be so many scheme markers on this on this board yeah, um, I mean, so Cloak and Dagger, I'm I'm pretty high on, but it's the one that I probably need to do, put the most yeah, I agree. thought into to tra- tra- really try and see how it plays out on the table. Yep. The rest of them, I think, are great. Um, I think Ballots is a very well-designed strategy. Plant Explosives is always a favorite, and the changes they made this year are excellent. Um, and then Raid the Vaults. I always like Guard the Stash, and Raid the Vaults is just better. Yeah, I think Raid the, the Vaults so. was a good tweak to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, because now I can um, bring a fast model and just go run for the back one to score my two VPs. Right. And you also, you know, it puts the onus on the opponent to really defend that back corner because in guard the stash, like, I mean, how often, if you were playing like flanker corner, 
how often did you actually score off of that back marker? Like not, not very, very often. rarely in my experience. <laughs> very, very rarely. This really gives an incentive to do that. So I think it's it's going to make you a little bit more aware of your hiring and like how the heck am I going to score that back marker? Because I really need to be able to do that to cap at four points. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been um I've been definitely very happy with it. All the strategies feel feel like they they're very unique um as yeah. in they they don't feel the same so that opens it up for a lot of different masters that i'm like okay i could bring this one but this master may be better at that uh like for example plant explosives i think molly is just supreme in that um Krooligans are pretty awesome at running that strat so that feels pretty good and uh and yeah, and then like Jan Lowe likes to vote. So I send the old man a vote and he gets his registration and an early voter card and goes, goes yeah. and does work. Indeed. And, you know, if I think back on Bayou, uh, who at this point, you know, I've already decided I'm probably not going to be playing as much um, this season, at least initially, like kind of for the first year. I mean, man, oh, man. I just look at this whole pool and I'm like, oh, man, I wish I was playing Zip because I was going to say, if I was playing by you, I would slam Zip so hard on the table. God, Zip could play into probably just about any pool. I did. I did uh, play Maw into uh, Plant Explosives, and I will say it felt very good putting two Rooster Riders on the table in corner deployment again. Oh, yeah. Because I love me some rooster. Riders I mean, by, they're gonna be by the end of turn two, I had a rooster rider in his deployment zone, <laughs> putting yeah. a putting a marker down. Mm-hmm. Felt good. Yeah, I mean, kind of just breezing over the schemes. The I think there's really only one scheme that I think is going to be difficult for me to justify taking, uh, and that's going to be sweating bullets. Just because it's, I, I feel like the reveal point is not very easy especially in a gaining grounds that's really incentivizing spreading out uh unless you have some way to move opponents models i think it's probably going to be pretty tough to score that first point so i i played sweating bullets and that's the one where you got to be within six of the center and engaging an opponent yeah you choose one of your models and then your that model has to be within six of the center and engaging an enemy master or henchman yeah so that one i did score i brought actually brought it in cloak and dagger because mm-hmm. you, you have the markers on the midline. So I was like, okay, he has three three models that are available as targets. So I just need to wait for one of them to get towards the center. And then I just pushed Izamu in that general area. And he has a two-inch reach. So I was like, cool. I mean, if, if they come anywhere near the middle, I can just engage that. And six is pretty big off the center. So if you imagine Izamu, it's six from the center. So I was at the very extreme of that. He has a two-inch base, essentially, and a two-inch reach. So, I mean, that's about a 10-inch bubble of me just pushing next yeah. to a model of somewhere w- near the middle. And mm-hmm. I was able to get his, um, whatever the pyro dudes, I think it's pyroman, no, pyro something. Whatever he is, the, the henchman for Karis. Oh, uh, Firestarter? Yeah, the Firestarter, that guy. Yep. yep. Firestarter. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think that one's too bad. I, I was able to do it just as I think crews that have mobility can move either their, their models around or their opponent's models around. Definitely have a leg up on that one for sure. Yeah, I think the only scheme that I'm really unhappy came back is let them bleed because I just don't yeah. like that scheme. I, I don't either. That's it's terrible. Yeah, because I feel like unless you play a certain crew, 
it's very difficult to manage that. And even then, I don't know if it is. I think condition crews can manage that a little better than others. So like Karis, Brewmaster, uh, people that are just looking to bleach down, they can probably manage that a little better. But I never liked it because I just don't feel like I control that scheme very well. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those that in all the times that I used to take it when it was in previous gaining grounds, I can't even tell you the number of times that I took that scheme and then never scored the reveal point because I realized that I had boxed myself in or I had to kill a specific model because I did not want it to activate the following turn. And it just turned into this constant like, okay, I'll score it turn three, then I'll score it turn four. And then it's like, well, crap, if I don't score it turn four, I can't double up on it for turn five so yeah it just i feel like it dictates your gameplay a little bit too much and it's too difficult to get the both both the reveal and the end game point for yeah some people um, like it like dixon actually likes it quite a bit and i was just mm-hmm. like well dixon that's because you got a lot of hate in your heart man and you just like killing yes. everything full of full of hate in his heart <laughs> so i think that for me let them bleed is probably the only truly dead scheme yeah, in I, this packet i agree with that for me and a lot of that just comes down to my play style on the crews that I tend to use. So, yeah. Hey, at least bu- at least public demo is gone. I hated that scheme. Public demo was not not a good scheme. <laughs> Some people brought um, it, and I'm like, hey, tip the cap to you. I just hate it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I do like is, like, you know, Outflank has always been one of those wonky schemes where it's like, Yeah, they well, fixed it up. You know, they fixed it up a lot, so it's actually a lot more usable now. And because of the distance that the strap markers end up being from the corners of the tables on those diagonal deployments, like you can't both stuff the ballots and get outflank yeah. on the same turn unless you've got like a bunch of AP. Uh, you can't just take one super solo model that can do it all. It's yeah. just not possible. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely... <laughs> Somebody who I know deploys a lot from the shadows with his bushwhackers. I know you appreciate that scheme coming back. Oh, yeah. Upflank is solid. Well, solid, there, there solid, was solid like, I don't know if you remember. I think it was, mm, was it GG2 or 1? It was one mm-hmm. of them where Outflank was there, but you also had um, a research mission where you yeah. could basically, if you had like a flank or corner, you just set up two of the bushwhackers. You put down a pit trap, you put down a scheme marker, and then... I forget there was also another marker that the strat one of the strategies put out. So you're just like, cool, I score research mission. There's three markers there. Cool, I score outflank. Yay, yeah, we did pretty it. Pretty boring. <laughs> pretty boring. I mean, now we've got obviously, you know, power ritual and outflank being in the same packet, which, yep. you know, if you're brave enough to take both of those, <laughs> you damn well better be sure that you can defend both your uh your corners, because otherwise you're gonna end up losing out on a lot of points. So it's risky. If your opponent goes hard on one side, then you're going to be hard pressed to defend it. And you could cost yourself multiple scheme points that way. I'm just happy that we're getting to see some of these scheme running models again. Like I, I've been seeing mm-hmm. a lot of Torkage. I've been seeing, yep. uh, actually, I've been seeing a lot of Torkage because I've been playing against a lot of 10 Thunders, um, a lot of Silurids, just a lot of those mm-hmm. models that have kind of taken like a snooze because of last GG. They're just back at it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like there's a couple of crews that are going to be really dominant um, this GG that really haven't been for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, if you end up going back to Arcanists and play Colette, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. She's I, such a nightmare to deal with. Yeah. And I, this GG is going to be killer for her. Yeah, I think she's going to be really good right now. Um, yeah. I'm terrified of playing against Nelly right now. I think Nelly's just going to be a monster. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I know. I, I was going to ask you, and I think we did briefly in, in kind of our chat, but uh, since you're looking at playing your explorers again, are you mm-hmm. feeling pretty good about slapping some operatives on the table or what's up with that? I mean, operatives are always good. Um, the problem is that they can still get blown out real easy. I mean, they just they're basically just six wounds. I, I and, noticed playing against yeah. one of my locals, Trevor here, because he plays uh, whatever, uh, whatever Anya's keyword syndicate. Syndicate. Yeah. So I've noticed, though, that because there's more scheme markers on the table, their front of card ability to draw cards is a lot yeah. more prevalent. I actually yeah. forgot that was an ability until this GG. I was like. Have they had that the whole time? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you're next to a scheme marker and I can just like take two of my crummy Derringer shots and yeah. it doesn't matter if I hit or miss. I'm still going to draw two cards. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, I was like, is that after good. resolving? He's like, yeah, I was like, oh, man, that's good. Yeah. And then, I mean, basically the only reason that I've ever really played operatives is for Arson. I think it's the only thing on their card that's really worth Yeah, which is more prevalent now. Which is more prevalent now. So, yeah, I do see myself taking more of them. And then if any of their other tech comes into play, then, you know, so much the better. Yeah, exactly. But with Explorers, you know, my kind of my stable of three masters that I plan on using are Syndicate, um, Umbra, and uh, Wastrel. Mm-hmm. I feel like all of them are oh, going to yeah, have great. a pretty good place in this particular GG. Anya so. got so much better. I mean, so much better when people Well, one, I feel like she gets overshadowed by a lot of explorers, masters in general, mm-hmm. uh, just because the keyword is a little more squishy, but yeah. man, if you haven't been affected by like bleeding edge and, you know, yeah. her screaming across the table and all of her scheme markers being hazardous terrain and, Mm-hmm. And all the hazardous terrain bubbles she can put out. I'm just like, man, people, if they haven't played against this, they're going to be surprised in a tournament. And she, like, I, the way I've always kind of looked at her is, like, as blue Ma Tucket. Um, She doesn't do quite as much as Ma. Like, she doesn't do the card draw. She doesn't generate all the pass tokens. She doesn't hit the min five. But she can sure put out a boatload of hazardous. And, um, you know, that stat seven tomahawk that yeah. you can build in the plus one damage and the heal on. Ugh. yeah it's uh it's pretty good yeah pretty good and sovereign if you don't have the tech to take care of him is such a nightmare to deal with yeah he puts out stunned and all sorts of nonsense and yeah he is a brutal totem if you haven't played against yeah. him yeah, and then oh sure. yeah don't forget you also got winston in keyword got winston in keyword and I know that you're not the biggest uh, Corvus Rook fan, but I always get work out of that guy. And I'll tell you what, Corvus, this GG, I think is absolutely going to be worth every one of his nine points so, because he is a scoring and denial machine. So my friend, is, he kind of fell into the same boat where he was like, you know what? Corvus just doesn't do a lot some games. So why don't you give a quick pitch for Corvus Rook that maybe like give Trevor some ideas on how uh, how he can be <laughs> sure. useful in this GG? So my thing with Corvus Rook is that I almost always activate him last or second to last. There's no reason to activate him any sooner than that because your opponent is going to end up having to spend a bunch of cards to attack him because they're going to have to pitch cards for his um, his uh, flexible morality or flexible morality thing. So that's going to you know tax your opponent's hand. And he's a stat seven on his melee, so you can more reliably use him towards the end of the turn when you've got kind of a crummy hand, and he can always build in draw out secrets. Um, he has draw out secrets on both of his attacks. Pressure is a horrible action, and I don't think you should ever take it unless it's for draw out secrets, but he can still do it at range sure. and on a six stat versus willpower. 
So for for Corvus, I really use him for scoring, for denial, because he can pick up scheme markers that are near him at the start of his activation to draw a card, which is great. Um, especially if you're using him towards the end of the turn and you can move him around with your own models to put him next to scheme markers yep. that you need to pick up as a passive, then great. And then if your opponent happens to be out of soul stones and cards, then he can just start swinging with stat seven executes just without having to spend stones for it. Yeah, late game, that can be kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's really it. Like if you're activating him first or second, he's you're wasting his points. He's not a good model but if yeah. you if you are realistically going to be able to score and deny at least two schemes um he's a great pick and then in this particular gg there's a good chance that you're going to be able to do that with like you know three four schemes in the pool well so I, I think he's going to be I, great. I like what you're saying because there is a lot of out of activation mobility with syndicate so mm-hmm. I do like the idea of using like your your Totem Sovereign and Winston and anybody else chain gang with the whatever boys and getting him into position to remove a ski marker because you're like, oh, they're trying to score this or I need to remove that so I can score a protected territory. Uh, so I think and you get to draw a card out of it, which is great. And then on top of that, I think you being able to put out draw out secrets, not only for like victory points, but also if Anya one sees those, they're now hazardous. So if your opponent does ignore those next turn, when they activate, they're going to be taking some damage. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at something like information overload, even if you're not trying to score it, just being able to put out scheme markers so that you have too many for your opponent to be able to score, you don't care where they are. You just need them on the table. Yep. I mean, that's great passive denial. Yeah. I I think he's going to be awesome. Yeah, so I, I think that's a great point with uh, with him for sure, and that, that's a good example of just how a G like a, a new gaining grounds can really change. Because I think last gaining grounds he sucked. Like yeah, he was terrible. Like people avoided him. He could stand on a point. That was about it. Yeah, I mean he didn't have enough damage to reliably kill stuff. He wasn't really tanky enough to be anywhere near the center. And then his ability to deny a flank and drop scheme markers just wasn't that valuable. Yeah, um, and he can kill scheme runners like. He's not he's not good at taking out tanky models, but he is good at killing little dudes. Yeah, I mean, like if if the little dude on the other side of the table is like an iron skeeter or like a necropunk, then like he's going to suck. He's not going to be able to punch hard enough to kill them and he's not going to go fast enough to, you know, catch up to him. Um, So even then, like, I I don't don't know, he's not a killing model. Like you look at a stat seven melee and you're like, well, I mean, clearly he's supposed to kill stuff because he's stat seven. No. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. So, is there any other models that you are very interested in in this gaining grounds that you're like I'm really excited to play this model because it can do cool crap in this gaining grounds? Oh boy. So, if I'm looking at my Explorer Society uh picks, I would have to say Desperate Row is Oof. oh my god. I hate he that is guy a, so much. A monster. Hate that guy. Monster. He's he was good in He's been good in every gaining grounds, yeah. and it's a damn good thing that I can't hire him out of keyword and explorer society. I think oh, Wastrel is just, and I think since this is a more schemey uh, GG, yeah. you could even bring, you know, Wastrel, you could bring the first version of McCabe and still have a very good time at it just because of the way the pools are going to shape up. Yeah. But if you still want to bash, the title's really good too. 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, the more I look at this, you know, I picked my stable of masters and I hate to say it like Ivan is my probably my favorite master aesthetically in the game. And I have the most fun playing him of just about anything. But if I look at the three masters that I picked, I mean, he's probably going to be the one that's the more corner case yeah. choice most of the time. I could probably just solo McCabe for this entire GG because he can do everything that I I'm actually I got that feeling with like Jan Lowe. Like, I feel yeah. like if I wanted to play just a solo master and resers. I feel like I could play mm-hmm. Yon low and he's very flexible. Yeah, I totally agree. Like if I'm playing into resers, he has always been the master that I've least liked to see on the opposite side of the table. He just has good models. Yeah, he, just, he really does have great models. And, and man, when that turn like, three hits, look out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're playing Yon low one or Yon low two. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> Fucking Manos and Yin are the banes of yeah. my existence. I hate seeing those models. Yeah, and I <laughs> Yin is the most disturbing model in the entire range of Malifaux. Let me tell you, I was painting that thing up. I'm like, this thing is disgusting. Like, yeah, it's gross. Got lungs hanging out, and it reminds me of I don't I don't know if you ever watched the show Vikings, but uh, yeah, that Blood Eagle episode. That's kind of what mm-hmm. it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh yeah. Uh so yeah, I'm really excited. That's what I'm really excited about is just playing Yan Lo. And honestly, I'm all also just exploring Rezzers a little bit because that is the faction I have the least running knowledge on. Um I just like I said, for some reason I feel like a lot of people don't play Rezzers because some people just aren't into that aesthetic. But they have some really great tech and models, man. Like like, like you said, Manos is just a beast. Like, Manos is exactly yeah. like Desper, where he's super good, but because we're in a schemey GG, he just got better. So, if you had to narrow down to a stable of three primary masters, obviously Yanlo's one of them. What do you think your other two would be? So, Molly's definitely my second one. I really mm-hmm. like her keyword a lot. I like her kind of card, discard, draw, slash, the difference makes different abilities and actions kind of click. So I really like that. I've been talking with Maniacal Cackle about Molly a lot and really enjoying a lot of his content. And he's actually going to come on and talk Molly after I get a handful more games into it. So we're going to do a deep dive on her. Um, And I always felt like low key. She's. Yeah, I think I think I could solo except for Raid the Vaults. I feel like I could solo her. Um, She's not great at standing on points. So that's the only thing I'm kind of like, eh, maybe not there. Um And then I'm really trying to figure out that third one. I'm putting Reva 2 on the table just to see how gross it is. Um, I don't know if she'll be the third one. It's kind of, I think it's it's up in the air between her and Transmortis. I think it's either going to be her or it's going to be uh, Von Stuck. Yeah, I think um, for somebody who likes playing Ma, you'd probably have more fun playing Reva 2. Um, she's really, really, really oppressive to play against, um, when you're doing it right. Like all the, all the little movements, the ping damage, the shielded, like it's so, so, so difficult to play, play into. Yeah. Um, I think it it rewards kind of like, you know, positioning and, Mm -hmm. and just making sure the crew's synergizing well with each other. And I'll see if I like it. I think I will. I don't think I'll like it better than the other two keywords, but I think it'll be, I think it's scary enough that if I put it on my tournament tray that people would freak out about it and maybe not focus on the other stuff that I want to play. 
I think from a catch-all standpoint, though, like it's tough to beat Stuck, especially Stuck too. He's going to be so strong in this gaining grounds. He was already yeah. good. Yeah, and he's just going to be gross. Yeah, because I'm probably going to pick up the It's Alive box anyways. Yeah. So just because I love Young Frankenstein, it's it's my favorite oh, Mel yeah. Brooks movie. Absolutely. I just watched it like two, three days ago. It's awesome. Yeah, I'll probably watch it sometime in the next month or two. I'll probably watch it just because I usually watch it every two years is about when I watch it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking at as far as the three that I'm playing into. Um and I was really close on playing Bayou again because I think Bayou is going to be pretty good. And oh, yeah. it, if I was doing that, it would have just been Maw Zip and probably Zoraida, Zoraida 2. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's a really good package. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I think uh, Ulux is going to have really good play uh, this yeah, game grounds the, as well. The only thing I... So here's what... And maybe you can help me with it. The thing I can't get around with Ulux is I get super punchy with Ulix and he just his attrition isn't great as you know pigs die mm -hmm. so I don't know so are you using Ulix one you think in this GG more as like hey go scheme and you know pick off loose models when you can is that better yeah I mean that that would be my line of play is I'd play I'd use Ulix one Ulix one and I would grow some war pigs and, you know, those war pigs are going to be able to just crush most flanks mm -hmm. uh, and then they're fast enough to still be able to score. I mean, a, a big model with a big base and reckless and good movement, like there's only so bad that it can be. And as long as you don't throw it in the middle where it's going to get punched yeah. down, it, it, those things are pretty tough to deal with out on a flank. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because I even did this with, when I was playing a game against Molly, right, where I kind of got impatient and I was playing against Misaki and I was like, you want to know what? I didn't come here just to look at it. And I threw the dead rider in the middle of the crew. I threw Archie in the middle of the crew. I'm like, let's bash and see, see how durable these models are. They weren't very durable. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not durable. Not at I, all. I think, uh, I think Misaki almost one shot at Archie. <laughs> Yeah, uh, she yeah. got like a charge through with two rams cooked into it. So I was like, yep, this is not good. He's in the danger zone. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, so anything else that you're interested to see in GG4, either how certain keywords might play out or factions? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Um, I, I am very interested in seeing how some of the punchier keywords are still going to fare in this gaining ground. So like, you know, I take a look at like Ophelia, for example. Um, yeah, I was surprised because you know. I, I thought she, I so if I was thinking in my head, like crews who are going to suck in this GG, Ophelia was one of them. And, you know, I think Ophelia 1 is probably going to have kind of a tough time finding her place because the way that I used to play her was I would use her when I hit a scheme and strat pool where I felt like I could score six points and deny my opponent most of theirs. She, I don't think that she's easily going to be able to score the six points in this GG anymore. Mm -hmm. um, she's really going to struggle for that. But I think Ophelia 2 is going to have some serious play because I, I mean, in terms of scheme marker um, denial... She's right up there with Zip in terms of yeah. um, removing scheme markers and denying points. So I feel like there's still definitely going to be a place for her. Um, but some of the other punchier keywords that have a tougher time, you know, scoring, going deep, going wide, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, it just I just wonder how much play they're still going to get. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Like I, I was thinking of crews like Hoffman. I was like, okay, Hoffman one might be okay because there are fast models and you can give them fast. I, I think Hoffman two might be not great except for maybe in raid. And yeah, I was just kind of thinking keywords like that where it's just like Lady J, I think she might suffer a little bit. You got to go kind of out of keyword, I think, for her to be okay mm-hmm. um, in a lot of the pools. Because they can, and that's the thing that, I was talking to one of my locals about where I was like, cause he played lady J and I was, I told him, it's like the thing she wants to do doesn't match this scheme pool. Like she wants to isolate models and kill those models. But besides getting activation control a little bit, that's not going to score you points in a lot of these pools. So it's like, okay, if, if you need to get to a point with her crew, you're going to need to bring like, I don't know, mounted guard or Louisa or something Mm -hmm. out of keyword to help you get to points and score. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think one of the other things and this kind of pulls in just on what you just said, I'm interested to see how explorers in general are going to fare this, this GG. And, you know, obviously I've made the decision that I'm going to switch to them. I think they'll be better. You know, I think they're, they're going to be better, I think, than they have been previously, but I feel like they're still missing some key slots that some other factions have access to. Like their out of keyword hires for the most part are still by and large weaker than I think other factions. Um, I, I think that their ability to scheme deep is still not really up to snuff. I mean, thankfully the one that you have to get the deepest for with raid default is not one that you have to do and also, you know, take interacts. So yeah. You know, the botanists and the Vernon and Wells, I think, are going to get a little bit more, yeah, especially no, Vernon and Wells. And those are verse styles, though. Yeah. But, I mean, just, I mean, anything outside of your your keyword is really what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, I, I'm interested to see how things actually pan out there. I do think they're going to be better, and that's part of the reason that I'm going to be getting back to them. But, yeah, we'll see if it was the right call or not. <laughs> yeah, I think explorers are going to, like... If, if I was an Explorer player, I definitely am a lot happier with this GG than the previous one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it is interesting, though, because I don't know, like, they're better in this GG. But I think if they run against some of those elite scheme crews like Colette and Nelly, it's kind of like, okay, do you have answers for that, though? So I think right. that is the interesting thing there. Yeah, there's going to be some real tough matchups for sure. Like, I mean, if I play into one of those and I can't do something like easily put out stunned or deny triggers, like I'm going to just not be able to keep up. (laughs) And I think that that really is the slot like into some of those tougher faction matchups. I really think that's where Anya is going to shine because, you know, Anya one has stun on a stick, uh, which is pretty good. And then Anya two can just literally deny huge areas of the board for, you know, enemy scheme markers um, for you know scoring. Yeah. And I, I think so. Anya one is good at scalpeling out models. I think she's yeah. good at kind of being like, okay, that needs to die. And now hostile environment, hostile work environments around. So you can't save it or heal it. And then mm-hmm. it dies. Yep. Yep. Oof. So we'll see if I uh, am still on this train in three or four months. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with my decision at this point. So. Well, I, I'm pretty, and like I said, I, I feel pretty good. And I have guild stuff, but I don't feel like going back to guild. So I feel myself like yeah. I'm going to do this Rezzer thing for a while. And then I think I play by you when I want that Maw fix. And then, um, you know, if I, if I want to try something really different, then I can be like, cool, let's bust out Colette 1 and Colette 2 and see what dirtiness I can bring there. 
Mm-hmm. So yep. that, that's kind of where Absolutely. I am. Sweet. Well, Jesse, I know you got a couple things that you want to plug just to refresh everybody's memory before we uh, roll up on out. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, we talked about it a lot at the start, but please, please, please sign up for Captain Con if you're planning on attending. Um, the other one is check out the Boring Conversation Facebook page and Discord channel. Keep an eye on your pod feed and your YouTube, uh, our YouTube page as well, because we're going to be putting out some more content very, very soon. Uh, and then consider contributing to our Patreon, because uh, that would make a huge difference for me and uh, makes me feel good when people are willing to pay for the content that I'm putting out. So Yeah, and then... Yeah. Uh, up until Captain Con, that patron money will go yep. to the tournament, which is awesome. Yep. All the patron money is going to go towards the tournament. Anything that you buy from our affiliate link is going to go towards the tournament. Um, and one big thing, and I completely forgot to mention this when I was talking about the Captain Con events, but um, it was so successful last year that I'm planning on doing it again. This year, I'm taking a page from the UK Nationals um, tournament pack and going to be giving out the Malifaux Cartographers Award again this year. Um, so that's one where there's, if you bring a terrain of, or a table worth of terrain, it gets entered into a judge pool, kind of similar to like a paint award would be. Uh, we're still going to be, of course, doing best painted, but this is going to be another thing that folks that are really deep in the hobby can, can, uh, can participate in. Um, basically, if you bring a table of terrain, enter it into the Malifaux cartographers competition, then myself and probably one other um, uh, judge are going to go around, take a look at those and decide which one is the most impressive, which one had the most work that went into it. And then there's a very special prize that you'll be taking home as part of that award. So oh, it's cool. pretty cool stuff. Yeah, definitely part of the hobby that I slack on. I have terrain, but I suck at painting them. <laughs> uh, terrain's just different. Like, I don't know. It is. Yeah, you're right. It is. Uh, it's not yeah. as exciting to paint. Like you, you feel like you're just doing it and it's kind of a chore. Yeah. But then once you actually get it all on the table and it's painted up nice, it, it feels pretty good. Yeah. And I feel like if you're good with an airbrush, you're probably better at it. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. My wife does Gunpla, like uh, Gundam model assembly. Yeah. So she's the one that has the airbrush and she's going to be teaching me how to use it here in the next month or so so that I can finish up go. some of the larger terrain pieces I have. All right, Jesse. Well, I want to thank you for coming on again. It was a lot of uh, a lot of fun, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Pete. And uh, looking forward to seeing you in just a couple of short months, sir. Yep. And then uh, make sure that you guys are flipping cards, flipping tables, and we will talk to you all later on the flip. On the flippity flop. <laughs> <laughs>